Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Everyone, I'm Carlos Chapman, and I am your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is: Is there a duty to forgive? With guests who are two of my favorite ministers and my friends, Rob Lee and Stan Williams, we'll talk about the narratives admonishing those who are victims of systemic harm to forgive, forget, and move forward. I'll start by having them introduce themselves. First, Rob. Hey, uh, my name is Rob Lee. I am a public theologian. I'm an author and I'm a pastor. I'm also got that that weird name that makes me uh, related to someone that you may have heard of, Carlos and other people. Um, I am a collateral descendant of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, um, making my issues with forgiveness all the more real. Um, so I'm grateful to be on this podcast today. I'm the author of now four books, including most recently Fostering Hope, a prayer book, um, for foster and adoptive families, and then a sin by any other name, reckoning with racism and the heritage of the South. Thank you. Thank you for joining me, Rob. All right, Stan, introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. Uh, Reverend Stan Williams here, um, bringing you greetings from Nightingale, North Carolina, by way of Durham, North Carolina. I'm assistant pastor of Zion Temple United Church of Christ there in Durham. I currently work for Duke Hospital, but I'm also have the opportunity to serve this semester as co-teacher of uh, sex, gender, and discipleship class with Reverend Dr. Amy Laura Hall at Duke Divinity. Um, and I, since it was last year, I'm still working on my potential first book about vain imaginations um, and reimagining our imaginations. Um, so that's where we are. Yeah. And I'm we are all ready. We're ready for that book, Stan. <laughs> We're all ready for it. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to power through. We need a writing retreat. We all could probably use the writing retreat, actually. I'll look into that. I'll, I'll put that on my to-do list. All right. So, Stan, I'd like to, you to set the stage for the audience oh. and just give us some background info. So where does the idea that we should forgive our enemies or even just those who have caused us harm come from in religious traditions? Where do we get this from? Okay. <laughs> so I guess that's a great place to start. Um, especially with a Judeo-Christian um, tradition. As a Christian tradition, I think it's a little twofold. Um, there are lots of scriptures in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, um, that talk about forgiveness. Most of the time, um, the crux for these scriptures is that Christians should forgive because they have been forgiven and are being forgiven by God. Like that's That's it, you know. Um, if you don't forgive others, then your heavenly father will not forgive you. Um, you know, don't judge and you won't be judged. Do not condemn. You won't be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. You know, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance with someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So again, the crux to these texts are almost always from the POV of the person who's been aggrieved, um, who's been harmed, who's been wronged. And it's about them forgiving this person that's harmed them um, because Christ has forgiven them. But there is a scripture, Matthew 5, 23, 24, that talks about if you think that someone has an issue with you, <laughs> not even that like they've harmed you, but if you think they've got an issue with you that you might've harmed them, leave your gift at the altar and then go reconcile with them and then bring your gift. You know, people don't usually talk about that part of the scripture because we always like to approach forgiveness from the idea of being the ones that um, are, um, are, are, should be doling it out, should be giving forgiveness, to be extending forgiveness, not always as the recipients of forgiveness. So part of that, again, is the, um, this Christian biblical aspect, I would say this church aspect, but there's also a cultural aspect to it especially in the United States, especially with Black people and their experience of living and scratching and surviving in the United States. Um, maybe it's because of how um, people have survived in the United States in the past, um, but it has not always been safe 
for people, especially minoritized groups, especially for people of color, to express or display their anger or, or rage, especially in the public sphere. And so, um, to quote Langston Hughes, we often hold it in our bodies and explode. It sags like a heavy load and we explode. Um, especially in the United States, um, Black people have to navigate how to deal with their hurt and their anger in, and their anger in public spaces. Um, just looking, can we get there? And this often means that we're rushed to forgive, that we're rushed to forgive. So it's not even just about forgiving, but it's just hurry up and doing it, rushing to forgive. Dylan Roof on trial for the Charleston Nine, right? He's apathetic in the courtroom. He's expressionless, but the families of the victims are there and they say, and I quote, we have no room for hating. We have to forgive. Botham Jean's mama, um, Miss Allison said, regardless of the views of the spectators, Walk with God always. Forgiveness is for the forgiver, and it doesn't matter what the forgiven does with it. I got a little issue with that. And then when Eric Garner's widow was asked by the media if she forgave the officers who apologized for Eric Garner's death, she said no. And she didn't just say no. She said expletive no. (laughs) She has no intention of forgiving that officer. She said, he's still working, he's still getting a paycheck, he's still feeding his kids, and my husband is six feet under. So who else has to maintain this this proper demeanor in the public eye while trying to justify their right to exist, let alone be angry? You know, this always happens when we, I won't say it like that, but I don't think the same experience happened with the shooting at Pulse. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm going to leave it there. Well, that's a good segue to my question for Rob. Um, You know, it seems to me not everyone is told to forgive first, right? You know, you talk about the shooting at Pulse as an example. And, you know, Rob, you've done a lot of work exploring your own family's history, the negative legacy of the South. How how have you experienced this disparity as someone who is is willing to acknowledge, um, you know, and to, to not leave your gift at the altar before you go out and try to address harm? Well, I think of it in two parts. This question should be answered in two parts. The first is no one ever asked me, do I forgive Robert E. Lee? And and I've never asked anybody, do you forgive Robert E. Lee? Because I think he committed uh, innumerable harms that he never atoned for. And I think Stan has a very good point um, that that there is there is action that should be conducted with forgiveness. Like you know, in John's Gospel, "Go and sin no more" is the response to forgiveness. If, If you're going to be forgiven, you have to have a response to that. And I think it's so hard in our culture right now because we just want the clean slate, especially white folk like me. We want to say, "I'm sorry." Uh, for all this, now let's go uh, to the barbecue and be happy together and sit and make sure that we sit near each other so we can enjoy each other's company. That actually breaks down and, and is not a true, what I would say, a true form of forgiveness, because a true form of forgiveness requires atonement and recognition that something has been done wrong. Did Dylan Roof receive forgiveness. Yes, they forgave him, but did he atone for the acts that he committed upon those people at Mother Emanuel Church? The same can be asked for so many of us in our, maybe not in those macro aggressions and those horrific forms of, of, of violence, but in our own lives, have we asked forgiveness for those people who we have harmed and then set ourselves on a path of right living beyond that of that original infraction? Um, Because for me, you know, in my own life of trying to be different, if I said I'm sorry and the next day was violently racist or or, or even microaggressions of racism to other people, would that warrant more forgiveness? I mean, I I don't know. That that breaks down for me. That doesn't add up for me. And so I think we have to be careful when we're talking about forgiveness um, without atonement and without seeking to be, you know, if you break that word down, at one meant. If we don't break that word down, if we want to be at one with one another and with God in that relationship, then we have to have changed living and changed behavior. And that's the only way that any of us can ever seek forgiveness in constructive ways. Go ahead, Stan. (laughs) No, I just get excited because I'm like, yes, yes. Preach it, Pastor, preach it. Yeah, you know, Beyonce said, you know, the best revenge is your paper, but like the best 
atonement, that best repentance, it's changed behavior. You know, like if I go and, you know, I hit somebody with a newspaper today, you know, tomorrow they're going to be a little gun shy if I come around them holding a newspaper again, no matter whether I hit them or not, they're still going to be cautious of it, you know, and they and have every gonna, right to be too. I think yes. we, put, we put the onus on the on the person who is doing the forgiving, like they're doing wrong if like they don't forgive you. Well, well, yeah. gosh, if you're holding that newspaper to borrow from your analogy, they have every right to be suspicious. They have every right to be concerned that they might get hit again. Yes, and Jesus does not gaslight people. <laughs> people ask, "What would Jesus do?" Jesus does not gaslight. Humans gaslight people. Jesus, I can't. Jesus doesn't tell us to get over it. That's all I can say right now. Well, I'll say more later. I, well, and I want to. I want to. I want to just say, if I may, you mm-hmm. know, one of the best essences of forgiveness for me, I actually learned from one of those silly Medea movies when Medea goes to jail, and Medea is there. And I know that's just. I know Tyler Perry can be problematic for some people. Bear with me on this. This example. But Medea is talking about how forgiveness is as much for you as it is for the other person. Like you've got to forgive to get your heart right, Dave, but they have to also be willing to receive that. And I question anybody who is on death row if they really meant what they said when they apologized. They should have never done that in the first place. And I th- it certainly change can happen, and I want to believe that. But I also think that the the, the burden of proof, to, to borrow from Carlos's work, has to be a little higher for that on, on how we're going to forgive people and watch that atonement occur. Because we can't just sit here and pretend like nothing happened. Oh, it's good. We're, that was pa- The past is the past, right? We've all heard that. But the reality is, that there has to be that 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 right living that goes along with that change behavior. Now, to me, when I when I think about this, I, I feel like it's a global pattern, right? And and the global pattern I see that is persisting um, also happens to deal with some of the work I've done on personhood. In that, those who are the per- poorest, those who are the darkest, those who are suffering the most, are those who are the non-persons, partial persons globally. But then those are also the ones who are just kind of expected to always give out, you know, unconditional forgiveness. And as Stan says, like, not cower in the face of the paper, right? Like, they're just expected to not behave as human beings do and continue to be fearful and, and to continue to just forgiving. And I just wonder for both of you, either of you can answer this fo- first. Have you observed this pattern where, you know, race is, is our first example. But I think generally when it's the poor, when it's people who are secondary and who are othered. Those are the people who are expected to forgive. And those who are educated and wealthy get to have some time to think about it. You know, I would say that I've seen this play out in my own family, my, my nuclear unit, if you will. Um, we adopted two girls from a very poor county in North Carolina. And in dealing with that scenario, one of the things I was very careful about is I didn't want to seem like the white savior. My my children are white, but I didn't want to seem like the white rich savior coming in and saying, hey, I'm just going to take your children from you. Um, and, and there were there were questions about forgiveness of do I forgive them for, for what they did to my kids, my kids now, right? Like they they, they were they were cruel. There was cruelty there. Um, and I don't forgive them. I don't. But on the flip side of that, I have also witnessed what you're saying, Carlos, where there are people that are so bent, so, so bent towards poverty, so bent towards the realities uh, 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 and complexities of this world that they're asked over and over and over just to, just to take one for the team and it'll be okay and we'll get past this, right? Like, we'll, we'll, it's always the next day, right? Like, and Dr. King talked about that. Like, he, was t- he wanted to cash that check that had been given and given and given and there was no receipt for that that we had in which we could say this check would cash, right? Like that was the ultimate breakdown for all of us in in society in the 1960s when King was talking about it and indeed today. So so I think it it, it is more complex than that. Obviously, there are complexities and nuance to this conversation. But I do think that, again, the weight is on those people who are the marginalized, um, the minority, uh, the broken, the disenfranchised. But I want to be clear, that's not Jesus's 
edict and command. That is not the way Jesus saw forgiveness. That's not how Jesus showed a preferential option to the poor. Um, There were were people in Jesus's time who he should not have interacted with based on the laws of the day. And yet he did, he chose to, and many religions offer this kind of, this, this, this story of people interacting with people that they shouldn't have. That's the best that we can offer. The worst is what we offer even here in the United States is saying, so sorry, we'll get you tomorrow. We'll, we'll get you. We'll get you there. If you just forgive us and move on, if you just reelect us to our next term, uh, we'll get you in the next, the next cycle. You know, you're, you're dead on it. You know, those that are marginalized, the poorest and the most suffering are have to balance that tightrope between either seeming like moral failures when they don't perform in that forgiving way or they take on like this this martyr <laughs> you know that you know taking one for the team sort of persona so you're yeah absolutely right it happens at every level i just wonder how much this rise of like prosperity gospel have has to do with this too um the idea that if you were good and if if jesus loves you you wouldn't be in this situation in the first place and we're therefore <laughs> Right. right. I'm sorry. But I just wonder- <laughs> yeah. No, no. I mean, because it is, and you know, like Reverend Robin is never going to do anything with me ever again. But like, I mean, the reality is, is like, yes, there, there is this misconception. There's this vain imagination that people think that once you start and you actually pursue a healthy relationship with God, then that means that every day is Sunday. It's all peaches and cream. And everything is going to be a-okay. And that's not the case. That's not in scripture. And Jesus doesn't even say that. Jesus is like, look, in this life, you're going to have trouble. <laughs> you're going to have troubles. Tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. Don't even worry about it. Tomorrow will take care of itself. But be a good cheer. I've, I've already overcome the world. But he do- Jesus doesn't negate the fact that we're going to go through things. He doesn't negate our experience. you know. And yes, so a prosperity gospel that says, if you only believe hard enough, you know, if, if your faith were intact or if you were living right, then this would happen to you. Same thing happened in Jesus' day. They were like, who sinned? Because, you know, especially when a culture says that if some sort of sickness or bad thing befalls you, it's because you've sinned and you're not in right standing with God. So it's real easy to point fingers then instead of offering hands and being compassionate. You know, what it makes me think about, though, is, um, and I just, came up with this. So just kind of flow with it. It makes me think, you know, how much of prosperity gospel is about not about the poor, but about making the wealthy and the prosperous blameless, right? If, if I am, if I have been given God's grace because I am rich and look at how great my life is and like, you know, hashtag girl boss and all that stuff, right? You know, I got all this stuff going on for me because I am right with God. If, if I cause harm to you, I'm right with God. It's it's even your fault that I'm harming you, right? Because I wouldn't be able to harm you if you were right with God, right? It kind of ends up being this vicious cycle where, you know, the poor, the marginalized should just keep forgiving because if they were right with God, with God this doesn't happen. And I think about some of my work I've done um, in researching the history of slavery. And it's very much, you know, what the Catholic Church was saying about Black people and Native American people, right? If if they were only Christian and not savages, we wouldn't be able to conquer them in this way. And therefore, they should forgive us for conquering them because are we actually even doing anything wrong? Like God is letting us do it. You know, it's interesting. I had a conversation with a pastor at a very old church and uh, they were talking about how um, their church was one of the first to baptize, you know, freed uh, slaves. And and, and, and I, while I celebrate the baptism and conversion of people, I also wondered, was that really something that we should all be celebrating in its truest form? Because in essence, we have robbed people of their home, their country, their sense of belonging, their religion, um, their, 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 their everything. And, and my family complicit in that in some of the most atrocious ways. And so while I celebrate the fact that they found faith despite the circumstances, I also grieve the fact, and this is part of forgiveness. There is grief in forgiveness. We have to remember that. I grieve the fact that it took that measure to get to that point. 
Um, it shouldn't have been that way. And so I grieve that it shouldn't have been that way. And yet still try to find hope amidst the circumstance that they found faith, that they found something to cling to amidst the darkest nights um, of the American slave trade and chattel slavery. Does that make anything okay? No. But, there, you know, I, I love there's a line from Sam Wells, uh, someone I believe Stan knows of uh, uh, from Duke. Uh, um, if it can't be happy, make it beautiful. And I think of it that way with forgiveness, right? Like some of these things, some of these scenarios can never, ever be happy. But our response to them, how we ultimately decide to forgive or to withhold forgiveness, even as a sign of witness, can be beautiful. When, when, when mothers of slain children stand and say, hell no, I'm not forgiving, that's a witness. That's a witness to something deeply broken in our country. The same can be said for the people uh, who forgave. But, but it's, all in, it's all in constructing the narrative and finding that way of, of making it beautiful despite the circumstances. Wow. I like that. I like that a lot, right? It's, you know, trying to find beauty in any of this is, is very, very difficult. Well, um, it is a challenge. Find, you know, and yeah. Jesus never said it would be easy. Like that, you know, that, I, don't, I don't think, I, nowhere in my seminary classes did I ever hear. And Jesus said, this will be the easiest thing that you've ever done. Um, and don't worry about it. I've got you. You're, you're, you know, what is it? That footprints thing that, that footprints he, he carry, he's going to, he's sometimes he has to drag us. You know, yes. it's not, it's yes. not, it's not just like, you know, picking you up and carrying you. Sometimes Jesus has to drag me to forgiveness, Kicking but Jesus can still call us to that. So. Do you want to add Stan? I just love having the two of you together. I just have to say that. Um, I can't imagine what it was like at Duke Divinity when y'all were around at the same time. I'm, like, I don't know what your professors did, uh, but I'm sure it was a good time. Or at least it was beautiful. There, there you go. Troublemaking kind of good trouble. Right, good trouble. Right. Yes. All right. Now, Rob, I'd like we've, we've kind of touched on this already, but I would just like to, you know, kind of hammer down more concretely. What are the obligations of those who seek forgiveness? I think the obligations of those who seek forgiveness uh, could be, it, it, it's certainly dependent upon the circumstance, right? Like there's no blanket, like this is the way to do it. Um, I, I, perhaps I can tell you from my own life how I've sought forgiveness. Um, when I was awarded the book deal to write a sin by any other name by Penguin Random House, my wife and I sat down and we were very intentional about um, making part of that award be reparations um, towards people in my community um, that to me represented parts of my story that were deeply broken and needed to be addressed. Does every um, situation require a monetary sum of money be given to someone in an effort to show um, the need for forgiveness? No, but that's partially what we need to be talking about is some form of reparations, some form of seeking forgiveness, of going to that person, to writing a letter, uh, to trying to hammer down what it is that I've done wrong without placating and saying, well, you did this, so I did this, and, and trying to justify a way why you're asking for forgiveness. To me, it should be kind of one of those things where you're down on your hands and knees and saying, I am so sorry for the way that I acted or for the way that my family carried itself throughout history. And here is what I'm going to do to be better in the future and seek to make sure that future generations, whether it be of my family or other people, will not, not commit the same wrongs that I have done. Because, you know, it's going to be bad fruit from that tree if you keep committing the same wrongs again and again and again, the, the children are going to pick up that fruit and it will be the same story over and over again throughout history. So my goal with my kids now is to make sure that they see the wrongs that my family, that myself, that my person has committed so that they can be their best selves in the future. And in so doing, I find a way to not only find peace with myself, but find peace with my neighbor um, and that peace may not look like what you think it is. It may not be where that person wants to come and have dinner with you every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. They may still harbor resentment against you, and that's not your prerogative. And I want to be clear about that. 
Carlos, if I did something to you and I, I, I royally made you mad and you said, you know what, I'm going to forgive you. Um, but I'm not God, so I'm not going to forget, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to forget what I've done, what you've done. That is your prerogative. That is not my prerogative as someone who has committed harm against you. And so I think that's really important to remember is that when you're seeking forgiveness, it's never a one-way street of like, okay, forgive me. And you say, okay, and then we're good. There, there's, there's, there's a lot, there's harm been committed there and there's wounds that have been rendered. And so you have to put a balm in those wounds in order uh, for a future to be had. Well, and what's interesting about what you're saying is the acknowledgement part. I, I think often as a society, we expect people to forgive. And I think about the list of examples that Stan gave. There was never an acknowledgement from the other party that anything was wrong, right? Never an acknowledgement at all. It was just these families saying, we can't hold anger and I'm just going to forgive with zero acknowledgement whatsoever and without it being a two-way street. Um, so it's almost as if the act of forgiveness is repeat harm, if there isn't the two-way street, right? If there isn't this exchange that Rob is talking about. Well, and, you know, I've seen too, one of the things that, that strikes me the most is, you know, I know some of the family members from the Mother Emanuel shooting, I was able to interview them. And I wanted to ask them like deep down, did you really mean what you said when you forgive? I didn't, that's none of my business. But I know deep down, had someone done that to me, I will, you know, that took courage. So I don't want to detract from that. But I also want to make sure that we have a lexicon and a vocabulary of what forgiveness should look like, because I think some people in our churches assume that if someone just does something and you forgive them, you're going to, you're where everything's good. Um, that's not how humanity plays out. That's not, you know, in, in a perfect world, maybe, but in a perfect world, there would be nine more black people living in this country um, that didn't get shot at Mother Emanuel. That would, that's, that's the ultimate goal, right? Like, but that's not what happened. And so we have to find a way to move on and move forward with their memories intact while also having some semblance of sanity in the process. All right. Now, Stan, my question for you is this, you know, what does forgiveness look like if the people seeking forgiveness aren't doing the work? Is it possible to have forgiveness at all if they're not doing the work on the other side? Oh, <laughs> oh, that's, that's rough. Um, and again, it's going to come down as, as Reverend Rob said, it comes down to your lexicon and your, your understanding of what forgiveness is. Um, because a lot of times in our culture, um, forgiveness is framed as being not so much for the person that has done the wrong, but for being the person for the person that's been harmed. Um, for example, um, you know, if you look at the Mayo Clinic's website and they're talking about um, what do you do um, to handle grudges, bitterness, um, just and, and learn how to forgive, they suggest that you acknowledge your emotions about the harm that's done to you and how it affects your behavior and work to release it. Choose to forgive the person that's offended you. Move away from your role as victim and release the control and power that offending person or situation has had in your life. But even there, like, you're still not being acknowledged. It's still not being validated by this other entity. Like, and, mm, well, what's, what's, what's telling to me about that is, you know, it, it makes me think about our vocabulary. Yes. Um, the word victim versus survivor. Like, what's so wrong with acknowledging that you were a victim? Like that something harmful has been done to you. You are a victim of a crime. You're a victim of a wrong. You know, we immediately want to switch to survivor mode. I survived it. I got over it. Um, and it's almost like it's demonized to say you're a victim for too long. Yes. It, we, yes, we don't want to be seen as victims in the language that's often attributed, especially in these, these sorts of instances, is always about, you know, taking that off of you. It's, it's almost like it's a cloak or something that's taken off of you. It's an aspect that kind of replaces your identity, like who you are, you know, it, it's, it liberates you to be more of who you are when you forgive this person because you're not the victim anymore. But if you don't give these people the opportunity and the space and the grace to grieve and to actually 
acknowledge how they feel to say, hey, this is how I feel. This, you know, this really happened to validate their experiences and their feelings. Ah. And that's really bad. Can I can I just say this and really get in trouble, Carlos? That mm-hmm. we don't always have the best models of that, especially um, intergenerationally um, between our elders and younger people. Because sometimes our elders and older generations, you know, they said, well, you're just going to deal with it. Um, you know, do it because I said do it. You know, I'm the adult here. But now we're all adults. <laughs> and so we have to learn how to relate with each other in new ways. And one of the ways that we're seeing this come out is in our concept of, of forgiveness. You know, people nowadays are really like, no, we're going to acknowledge what happened. We're going to talk about this. And because I need to say, I need to express how it made me feel. Like, you might want to rush me past this, but no. Like, we're going to sit here with this. And like Reverend Rob said, we're not going to rush people to this. We're going to give them the space and the time and the grace to feel what they need to feel, to acknowledge it, to process it however they need to process it, and understand that it might not always come back the way we want. Like, they might not want anything to do with us. If that's what creating and maintaining healthy boundaries looks like for them as a part of their forgiveness journey, we, if we're the ones that are, have done the offense, we got to be okay with that. We have to learn how, we have to learn how to pursue forgiveness. Like, like, like as Reverend Rob said, we've got to learn how, how to really, what it really means. Like, how do we practice that in our lives? You know, that at one minute, you know, that reconciling. Well, you know, and I think too, one of the things that comes to mind is like, I was, I'm a big proponent of therapy, love therapy. I was in therapy and I was uh, commenting about some part of my identity that I didn't like and I wanted to change. And my therapist finally said to me, Rob, stop you are not going to outlive or survive your identity. It is, some, it is chronic. Your identity is chronic. It will be with you for the rest of your life. And so when you think about identity as something that is part of you for the rest of your life, you are, there are very few parts of your identity, your core self, that you're going to change. Then in that regard, it enables you and it's freeing to you to say, okay, I don't, I, I, sometimes I am a victim of my own self or a victim of others. There's no need to move to that survivor mentality because some things you're not going to survive. You, some things you might not survive. And so I, I think we need to sit where we are. And I, I think Stan said it so eloquently about, about that space that we need. Sit where we are, be in the moment, and forgiveness will come or it won't. I mean, it's not going to, you know, you can't for, I don't, I hope we can't force forgiveness. I hope we don't force forgiveness because if we do, that says a lot more about us as recipients of forgiveness uh, than it does about the forgiver. It makes us the perpetrator of harm rather than the person who is, uh, you know, seeking forgiveness from us or, or vice, you know, it just gets so complex and so nuanced, but in reality, what we have to remember there's some things that we won't survive. So how do we live with them? How do we live with that and get through the day tomorrow and the next day and the next day? Absolutely right, Rev. Because <laughs> the thing is, it. I want to go ahead and apologize to all the people that have been told to just move on. <laughs> because there are some things, like Reverend Rob is saying, in this life that you will never get over. And there have been a lot of instances and especially a lot of people on platforms and pulpits that have just told people to just get over it. And there are some things in this life that you will never get over, but we are learning how to get through them. We are learning how to get through them and not just get through them, but to live through them, like to have our abundant life, to have that wholeness of our life, that fullness of our life, um, and not in spite of the things that have happened to us, but because... Like, not because of those things that have happened, but in spite of those things. Like, that's what it's about. Like, because there are some things you just, you will never get over. There are some experiences, you know, and that, again, that's just about rushing people so that I feel better about myself. But giving them the space to really feel what they feel and to acknowledge it and acknowledge that, hey, this really hurt them. Hey, their loved ones are not coming home. Hey, you know, like, that, just that alone would would improve our relations but yes give people that space like because we live through it we live through it there are things that we're dealing with we just live through we live with yeah, yeah. 
You know, what's interesting to me is you've, you've both used the word grief throughout our entire conversation and, and like the need to grieve and the need to give people the space to grieve. And I have never until y'all, y'all started having the conversation, put the concept of forgiveness and being forgiven together with grief, right? Like to, cause you know, I, it's very linear, right? Something is done to you. You forgive that person. They ask forgiveness, you forgive or you don't, and you move on. But you know, I feel I have not made space for grief on my side uh, when I've when I've harmed someone or when I have been harmed. Um, and it just makes me wonder, why as a society do we always skip the grief? Right. We we want things to be very neat. We want things to be very clean cut. But, you know, it's like I'll ask for forgiveness. Maybe I'll apologize. Maybe you forgive me or don't. But I'm not grieving that I've harmed you you're not grieving that I harmed you and I need to be forgiven. It's just like, forgive, let's all sit with it and move forward. Um, and it just makes me think, why as a society are we so afraid of, of, of grief and acknowledging the need to do it? Stan, <laughs> I'll start with you. I'm sure you have thoughts. <laughs> oh, because we're rushing. We're rushing to this, this cheapened sense of forgiveness. Like, we're... Like because we're trying to get past it so fast that we're we're hopefully trying to avoid the anger, and underneath a lot of the anger is grief. Like, but we don't have time to even sit with the anger to acknowledge the anger. We want to try and catch folks before they get the anger because we don't know how they'll retaliate. So, a lot of times reconciliation or attempts to reconcile is about not being retaliated against. Like, is how it how it feels in my head. Like, like, before you get mad and before you do something back to me, let me apologize and hopefully we can move past it, you know, and the slate will be clean and we'll be back even, you know. And so that's part of the problem that I have sometimes with, with language of reconciliation, um, because people try to use that word to, I feel like, to skate around reckoning, like to actually sit and acknowledge and be accountable, as Reverend Robert said, to appreciate um, what's been done, how we've harmed others, how We've harmed ourselves, how others have harmed us. And we can't reckon with, we can't, we can't reconcile what we are reckoning and we can't reckon what we don't recognize first, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so I feel like that's why we can't talk about the grief because we don't, we don't stick around it. We don't linger with it long enough. You know, we're, we're so ready to rush past it to move on to the next thing, maybe in hopes of self-preservation. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famed uh, German theologian who died at the hands of the Nazis, talked about costly grace and discipleship. I, I think that in our capitalistic mindset, um, dare I say, that we are so consumed with getting things cheap that we forget mm -hmm. that forgiveness costs us something, mm -hmm. um, that it costs us something really quite, quite grand. I think about it this way. Um, I talk about this a little bit in my book, but not at length. But um, when, when, when my parents hired someone who was a black nanny to care for me, I wanted to actually seek forgiveness for that act on behalf of our family with my parents' blessing to go and talk to her. So I drove up to her house and she had died years prior. I was never able to get the forgiveness that I sought on this side of the Jordan, at least. Um, and yet I have hope. I'm not, a, I'm not a preacher without hope. That in some small, maybe insignificant way, she saw in me what I loved about her beyond the divide and chasm of race. Does that make any of it right? No, it doesn't. But does it make it a little more beautiful? I think so. And that does not justify or placate or abdicate my responsibility or my parents' responsibility in this act that has been perpetrated by Southern white families for generations. But it does, in some small way, break the cycle and say that we can be different. And did that cost me? I mean, you, you both know me. You know what it cost me to speak up about this stuff. And I'm not bragging. That's not something to brag about. But it did cost me something. It was costly. But I would rather be cost everything and still have my soul intact than to not be forgiven by the people I admire and trust and love and have cheap forgiveness and cheap grace. 
Um, that's not something I'm after in this life. And I don't think if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we don't need to be after that either in any capacity. Now, Stan, you talked about, you know, the fear of retaliation and self-preservation and what happens when we skip the grief and we get to anger. Um, so my question for you is, what do we do with the anger, right? Is it, is it better for us to forgive and move on and skip the steps or, you know, what's the best way for those who are harmed to be made whole, who aren't given this space to grieve, you know, is anger the solution or what, what, what do we do with it? I appreciate, first of all, that you have mentioned being made whole because a lot of times our culture, um, and I think the church itself um, is, um, settles for being healed but that's a vain imagination because the goal is always wholeness. Like even in scripture and even in hymnody, it's always about being whole, you know, down at the cross, you know, plunge in the day and be made complete. You know, he touched me and made me whole. It's not always just about like, do you want to be healed? It's will you be made whole? You know, like the, when culture loves to rush us to forgive, they think it, a lot of people think it's because it's what Jesus would do, but Jesus acknowledges where people are. <laughs> you know, the first question in, in scripture asked by God is, where are you? And for me, when I read that, it's not, it's God attempting to give us an opportunity to reorient ourselves, to like to acknowledge it and think about where we are, like not just the physical space, but the emotional space, the mental space. Because here we have two people that are created and loved for who they are. They're hiding aspects of who they are from an ever-present, all-knowing God that knows the whole story and loves them anyway. <laughs> like, so God, Jesus is always going to acknowledge where people are, you know, but Jesus also tells people about themselves, turns tables over and forgives. Like, so like, like Jesus, again, doesn't gaslight folks. Jesus doesn't tell people to get over it. So what do we do with that anger? We've got to acknowledge it. We have to give people an opportunity, first of all, to acknowledge their anger. And that's what, hap- that's what they're not getting when they're put on this public, you know, pedestal. You know, when they're being rushed to forgive, you know, because, you know, you're, you process that, you know, you've got holidays that are coming up, you know, without this loved one, you know, you, you've got just the next breath. You know, we've seen instances in our lives of losing, you know, folks and how much you don't just get over that in three days. You don't just get over that in a weekend. You know, the hard work starts. So much hard work comes after the funeral when everybody stops checking in, you know, mm-hmm. like. And we, that's when we should be trying to, to reach out most, but we don't. The work that Jesus does is really just about reintegrating people. Like, that's why I appreciate you talking about wholeness, because it's not just about, okay, like, you're better now, but it's a really, it's always to reintegrate people back into society. When Jesus is telling folks, you know, go show yourselves to the priest, it's so that they can be reintegrated back into society. When Jesus is resurrecting, you know, widow's son, is so that they can be reintegrated back into society. The woman with the issue of blood, she's being, she's lost everything she's had. She's not supposed to be there. She's supposed to be on the outskirts. But through this relationship, through this, this God encounter, she's being reintegrated. And so, like, what do we do with that anger? We've got to acknowledge it. We have to find healthy ways to acknowledge it and express it. And we've got to give sp- people space to do that. You know, it's not easy. It is not a fast word, as Reverend Rob said. It takes time. You know, it's something that we just process through. We one step at a step by step we'll make the journey. We take it day by day, breath by breath, you know, and give ourselves space to feel that and be okay with that, to give grace to say, you know what, I'm not feeling it today. I'm real angry about such and such, you know. Is that <laughs> yes, we, we gotta give ourselves space and, and to know that it's okay. Scripture says we can be angry, don't sin but we can be angry, like acknowledge how you feel. Why not acknowledge it? How can we be honest with God if we can't be honest with ourselves? Well, and it, it makes me think about how, you know, in, in denying people grief and denying people anger, you're denying their humanity, but you're also blocking their ability to be spiritually connected and whole in doing that, right? And in, in saying that, you know, as a society, we can't talk about history. 
History is upsetting to too many people. It looks like critical race theory to me. Oh, my God. Right. If I say that, you know, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, that's the worst thing I could say in this part of the country, even though literally he did. Right. Um, And it's but it's denying folks that ability Um, like you're denying yourself the ability to be made whole as the person who did harm. But if we say as a society, you have to rush the process. We've just got a bunch of broken people because we won't have truth and we won't have reconciliation. Yeah. Broken, unvalidated, like, you know, people that are not affirmed, people that are not validated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Rob, it makes me think about, you know, I actually think the part of your book where you talked about your nanny is probably my favorite part. Um, and it just, it helped me to understand who you are as a person in so many ways, um, in part because you did go and seek forgiveness. And, you know, I have lots of friends who had Black nannies in the South who just make excuses and say, we employed her, we gave them clothes, we gave them food. Like, it's 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 a white savior narrative about that dichotomy about taking people away from their own families to take care of yours. And I just wonder... You know, in in seeking that forgiveness from her, were you concerned about the anger, right? And and were you concerned? And, and did that that risk of conf- of facing someone who was angry stop you from seeking the forgiveness? I remember being very nervous uh, walking up to the to the house, um, not because I was concerned that she would lash out. Um, she wasn't that type of person. The concern for me was that I wouldn't rise to the occasion of being able to say what needed to be said. I was terrified. Uh, not Again, not of her in any capacity, but more of what I had done and what my family had done and what that represented now in the light and culture that we live. Um, uh, more enlightened, if you will. We have more ability to look back on that with context versus what we were doing at the time. Again, I'm not defending it, but but there there, there were certainly things that we could look at now that made it more terrifying for me to, to even to approach her. But I'll also say, Carlos, that, that, that when I left, after finding out that she had died, there was also this deep well of sadness that there wouldn't be a- atonement because I yearned for that. I, I love Janie. I loved Janie. I love what Janie represented for me for so many ways, um, despite the trappings of our relationship. And that's the thing that I wish that people, especially people in my position as a white person whose family has been culpable in the enslavement of black people, I don't ask for it to be rosy and, 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 and nice and beautiful and oh, we're all good. But at least we can be honest about it. At the very least, we could be honest about the pain that we've caused by our inability to even speak the truth, the historical documented truth about Thomas Jefferson. That's far more uh, sinful to me than, than, than most sins that we're committing right now. If we can't be honest about our past, how can God invite us into a different and better future? If we're sitting here pretending like nothing's wrong, then God's not going to coerce us into thinking that something is wrong. That's just not how God operates for us right now. Now, God prods at us. God invites us into a different way of viewing things, but we have to be willing to walk through that door. God's not going to coerce us through a door. God does not need our consent to be God. God will continue to act without us. But that said, God has chosen to act with us. And the only way God will act with us is if we're honest about our past and therefore thoughtful about our future. Now, Stan, I'm going to throw the last question to you because we've only got a few minutes left. <laughs> and and he, he hates it when I do this. And then he does an amazing job. So, you know, is there a way forward that only involves forgiveness or do we need to do more? Do we need to do more than just finding a way to forgive each other? It's going to be hard to answer that without us doing the work of really defining what forgiveness means what forgiveness looks like. Um, We're going to have to reimagine what forgiveness is. Um, You know, again, giving people space, acknowledging, acknowledging so that we can recognize, so that we can reckon and deal with 
so that we can hopefully get to reconciliation. But again, where are we? You know, we have to be honest about where we are, what people are experiencing, you know, because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But can we get some justice? Can we get an acknowledgement? Can we get some validation for what we're feeling? You know, that's just working on that. It's definitely going to open us up for a beautiful future. You know, I don't know if it only involves forgiveness, but it'll always include more because our journey with each other is always going to include more, you know. And what has moved me about this conversation as a whole is, you know, the focus on truth and grief that that you both have had and, and of giving people space to feel what they feel and to that everyone, every human being has the right to have human emotions and human feelings. And I think that is what I want to be the takeaway. You know, we can't control, we can control what we do, but we can't control how people respond. Right. And it's not in us to control how those people respond. And we have to give them that space. Um, So I appreciate you both coming. And this it always goes so fast. Right. (laughs) Whenever we record these episodes. So thank you both for being here. And thank you both for being such good friends. I have to say, Um, I, you know, I, I wish everyone had friends like Rob and Stan who they can text in the middle of the night and say something crazy. And often Rob is awake if I text him in the middle of the night. Um. And actually maybe stand too, but it is just very beneficial to have both these people in my life. And so I hope other people can have the same grace and joy of having folks like Robin stand around. Grateful for y'all. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Professor. Y'all are the Thank best. You, I, this, right. has been, this has been great. I mean, hey, I can do this all night, but you know. Right, right. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Get In Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are played, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It's also on the Voice America Network and on our YouTube channel. Feel free to reach out to me on the show's webpage or on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. You can find Reverend Rob Lee everywhere. Um, probably more places than you want to find him, <laughs> I would say. I think Rob might want to be left alone. Stan does kind of hide, but he is at Zion Temple in Durham, and he is at Duke University. And is Zion Temple still doing things on the internet? Doing this uh, broadcasting on the internet? No? Yeah, but this coming Sunday, we're actually going to have our first in-person service, so we're very excited about that. Yes. Yay! Yay. Zion Temple is the church I went to when I was an undergrad. And so it it fills my heart that Stan is there. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thanks again to Rob and Stan. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion. 